You're listening to Builderpedia, your go-to podcast for everything you need to know about property. By covering the entire journey from buying your home through to design, building, selling and everything in between. We'll help you fill in the blanks and bring your property vision to life. Welcome to the latest episode of Builderpedia. We're thrilled to have David Moses of Horizon and David is a master builder. I remember, we just discussed, I remember him a while ago being young master builder. Now he's master builder of the year in New South Wales Master Builders Excellence in Housing Award. Also Bell Magazine, master builder of the year. So multi-award winning master builder, I should say. David Moses, thank you so much for joining us. That's a pleasure to be. Thank you. So I guess we've known each other for a while. I remember I don't know if you remember, but like a hundred years ago, we were in a tender meeting and then you walked into the tender meeting as we were walking out at a city office somewhere. That happens quite often. Yeah. But we've sort of known of each other. We've met, we've bumped into each other at award ceremonies and, and recently we bumped into each other at the most unusual of places, the Banff Film Festival, which uh, <laughs> when I saw you there, I remember you told me about once but i understand you've got quite a association with the banff yeah i think i've been going for about 21 years in a row every year 22 maybe it's yeah it's one of the highlights of my year i love it yeah and are you into your outdoors what, what, what's your outdoor passion oh anything outdoors really you know sports and and uh, mostly team sports but golf and anything i can do to get outdoors but and I've been to Mount Everest three times to the the base camp, and I've been uh, I've been all over Patagonia and all over New Zealand and, and Australia, and you know, hiking, trekking, camping. Yeah, love it. And what was your highlight from this year's Banff Festival? I've I've got a personal highlight, but you you this year, I think it was the young French girl who does the kayaking. That that, that was a, a pretty exciting sort of a, a movie and quite inspiring. And I've tried kayaking, and and it's not something I'm very good at so you've got to appreciate how good she is to uh, to do the things that she does and of course she takes it to the next level she goes down 100 foot waterfalls in a kayak yeah. which uh, what's the biggest waterfall you've gone off david oh, probably 10 meters or so but no kayak is jumping <laughs> i really loved the bridge boys do you remember the bridge boys yeah they were just insane but they in a nutshell they climbed over a kilometre under a highway bridge in the middle of COVID because they, they weren't able to get to the mountains. So they set this thing up where they were, uh, they were climbing under a freeway bridge and getting resupplied and it was all but, – but, I mean, they're just, they're just very good performers, I guess. They were very, they, it was highly yeah. entertaining. They were very funny people. I really enjoyed that. I think the issue my, I had on the night was I'd, I'd already seen it, so maybe that that's why it wasn't a highlight for me, but certainly a, a really good movie. Yeah. Now, David, we both come from, I guess, a degree in, in building, but I think, like, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think where we ended up, you're known for saying that builders don't build. I wonder if you still stand by that because I think I think we're at, like, a little bit, of a disagreement there. Yeah, no, so I went to University of New South Wales and as I recall, they told us um, that we were very lucky to get into the course and it was going to be four fantastic years of learning 
but at the time in 1993, the prospects of actually getting a job when we finished the degree were pretty small. And then lo and behold, I think later that year, Juan Antonio Samaranch declared that Sydney would get the Olympics, and I think the industry just changed overnight. And there was yeah, plenty of work by the time we finished uni. And I, I actually, in 1994, got a job labouring with Horizon, two days a week and school holidays and things like that, and just learning and, and you know, being a sponge and asking lots of questions and listening to all, all the answers and, and trying to you know, get a, a, a more of a, a hands-on experience on what was going on rather than the theoretical experience that we were learning at uni. So. I thought that that was a really formative part of my career. And I think it was on the first day of university at New South Wales, a fellow named uh, Clyde Smythe, who was the lecturer of uh, Construction One, on the first morning of the first day, uh, said to me that builders don't build, they manage. And uh, I was ready to get up and leave. And, and well, I came in to learn how to be a builder, so it looks like I'm in the wrong place. But it quickly became apparent to me that, that he was right. And I don't have any tattoos, but if I was going to get a tattoo and it wasn't something to do with my children, it would probably be that builders don't build, they manage. I live by that every day. I run our business that way. And our attitude is that building is a professional, it's a profession, number one, not a trade. And it is um, a service. Similar to being a lawyer or an accountant or a doctor, and um, we are a professional services firm, and our service is the management of building projects. And I think we, you know, we're, we're pretty good at it. We've been doing it for a long time. And the way that I describe, because people have the same reaction that I do, or I did when I first heard that statement, which seems counterintuitive, but if I Describe it to people in terms of an orchestra. And I say that designers, engineers, architects, interior designers, they write music and a plumber might play the violin and a electrician might play the saxophone and a concreter might play the trumpet. If you give all of these people music to play, they will take that music and they will start playing whenever it suits them and they'll finish they'll go quickly they'll go slowly they'll play loudly they'll play softly they'll play in tune out of tune and effectively you have chaos but if you have a, a manager of that orchestra the conductor and that conductor knows everyone's music what they should be playing can't play the trumpet better than the trumpeter but knows how the trumpet should be played and the violin, and the drums, uh, and the saxophone, knows how to coordinate all of those people to start and, and, and finish at the right time. That's that's a program. And, and how loudly and softly and, and in what tune and tone to play, that's your sort of quality control and making sure they're playing the right music to begin with. Then you get a symphony, and it sounds fantastic. But the conductor uh, himself or herself um, doesn't actually make a sound. So they don't actually contribute in terms of a, a physical way to creating the music. But if they do their job right, the music sounds fantastic. And I think, for me, that's the best analogy in terms of building, that a builder doesn't build, they manage, and they 
yeah, plan, organize, direct, and control a team uh, around them to get a successful outcome, but they don't actually build anything themselves. Yeah, so I guess my take on it, I've just seen where that's taken too far, where people in the building industry can manage, try and manage their way out of things. And I kind of go, you still have to know how to build. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so so I kind of go, yeah, I'm not, I wouldn't say for a minute that builders spend all their time building and not managing. Builders have to manage, but I just kind of always, it's always irked me that builders don't build where they do need to build as well because there's a craft to to it i disagree they don't need to build they need to know how things are built yeah they need to be able to call bullshit they need to be able to say that's not being done right that's not that shouldn't take that long it shouldn't cost that much it hasn't been uh you know it hasn't been prepared rightly correctly or, or they need to know how to build absolutely absolutely but they don't need to do it themselves they need to manage, they need to plan it, they need to organize a team that can do it for them, they need to direct them what they need done and when they need it done, and they need to control the process and make sure that people are on track and on the program and on the, the pathway to towards you know, quality control, but they don't have to do it themselves. And we've got our second rule in our business, which is that you don't teach a bricklayer how to lay bricks. And that was given to me by the founder of Horizon, who was my mentor and my boss and then became my business partner. You know, if you have to teach a bricklayer how to lay bricks, they're the wrong people. Get rid of them. Find the best tradesman you can in every single specialty. And not only then you don't have to teach them what they want to do or need to do, but rather you can ask them for their advice because they actually know more about bricklaying than you do. So if you can, and I think the strength of Horizon which we are now in our 34th year with the same ABN, which is, you know, I don't know about unheard of, but it's extremely rare. It's unheard of. I can say it's unheard of. Yeah. Well, well the, the strength and the, you know, our ability to have done that and achieve that is, is that we have surrounded ourselves with really, really good people in every trade. And uh, certainly, you know, we've got project managers and contract administrators in our office and, and myself and as a construction manager, and then we've got foremen on site and leading hands and carpenters and apprentices. So all of those people know how to build. And depending on the job, some of those foremen, you know, will put a nail bag on and build, but then they're not really being a builder per se. They're, they're more being a tradesman and, and, you know, their priority is always to manage the job first and if there's more time, left in the day, then they can jump on and you know, hammer in some joists or frames yeah. or roofs. Or, but that that is carpentry. That's not building. Yeah, yeah. So can I sort of like infer that where we're in disagreement is what the word build means to you. It's physical build. To me, building's an art. There's an art to it. That There's a craft to it. There's a craft to kind of going, okay, concrete. Concrete is not as straight as as aluminium so when you have an aluminium window abutting a concrete wall that's the art you have to make that work but there's nothing physical in that that is about planning it's about good communication with your concreter it's about you know looking at what the best products are available it's about putting it into a program they're all 
management. They're not a physical trade that needs to be done. I think you and I are perfectly aligned. We just might you know, uh, um, describe it in a different way. Well, my favourite sort of anecdote there is when I arrived on site once and I saw there was a gap between a tim- new timber wall that was clad and a concrete wall and the gap grew from zero to 15 mil, which if it was 15 to, to 20 mil it would, or 15 to 25 mil, you wouldn't have picked it up, but it went from zero to 15 mil or 20 mil and it's so the gap. You can imagine a vertical line growing. And I said to the carpenter, mate, you got to fix that. It's not right. And he's like, well, my wall's perfectly plumb. <laughs> the concrete's out. And I'm like, yeah, but that concrete ain't moving, so you better adjust to what's there. So that's the art of the build. Like it's bringing those two elements together. Again, I mean, we could we could go back and forth on that, but at the end of the day, I, I agree with you, but, you saying to the carpenter, fix it, is management. The carpenter is not a builder, he's a carpenter. Yeah. So I see, I, absolutely, I see, um, well, first and foremost, I see building as a service, but it's certainly a craft and, you know, very, very few people are, are really, really good at it. Yeah, I agree. All right, let's leave that one because that could go on for hours. <laughs> but I do, I did want to, actually, before we do, before we go on, did you have an inspirational person, book, or story to share? I often forget about this bit, but it's something that we ask our guests. I did. I, I mean, I, I get inspired a lot by a lot of different things and, and people around me, and I, I just got a heads up, like, literally 10 minutes before uh, we joined, so I had to think quickly. But um, just, like, this weekend I watched um, on Netflix a new um, documentary on um, on the Tour de France, and I've always been a big fan of watching the Tour de France each year, and I could highly recommend watching the um, the documentary. And I thought it was quite insightful. I've seen lots and lots of documentaries on cycling, but this one in particular had an amazing access inside the tour bus and inside the team cars, and the um, you know the sports directors and on the radio talking to the the athletes on the bikes and and you know what these guys go through to get to where they are and, and the tactics and the strategies and the and and the final sort of episode I don't want to give too much away but I think one of the sports directors is is asked you know how we'd be happy you know, with the outcome of the documentary itself and and he says you know if people can understand how much of a team sport um, cycling is then then the documentary has been a success, and and I think it it really does give everyone a sense of how much of a, a team sport uh, cycling is. And if I you know, bring it back to building, and we sponsor a couple of rugby clubs, and and when I go and speak to the the parents or the players and talk about you know why why we do what we do, you know, rugby in particular, I think is the ultimate team sport, and when you you know, take that ball and put it under your shoulder and, and run forward towards the opposition. You know, if your teammates aren't behind you, you're going to get hurt. And and if you're not behind your teammates when they're running forward, uh, they're going to get hurt. And any one player who drops a ball or misses a tackle or, or can cost the game. And, and I think building's the same in terms of any one trade on a building site can drop the ball for the rest of the team. 
And um, it really is the coordination of lots of different people with lots of different specialities that come together to produce something extraordinary. And rugby's the same. You've got big guys and small guys and fat guys and thin guys and fast guys and slow guys, and you've got plumbers and electricians and, and concreters. And, and it's really, you know, again, the skill of a building a builder to manage all of these different people and all of these different personalities and the architects and designers and engineers and clients and council and neighbours and, and all of these things to bring that team together to get to get the result. And I noticed you put the concreter on the trumpet. I, f- I think I'm going to put him on the drums or something somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure about some of your uh, instrument selections there. I think your orchestra needs a bit of a region. But um, definitely the the plumber playing uh, something with, with tubes and, and gauges is absolutely. But, uh, yeah, the concreter, probably that big drum. I think most of our conquerors that are probably uh, describe themselves as violinists or. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, I think they're all, they tend to, I mean, I love concreters. They're, they travel in packs. They're, they're always big guys. They're a breed. And, and you kind of, it's one of those, one thing that always bugs me is people's attitude towards builders and road crews. And they see them standing around a lot and, and concreters stand around a lot. But holy shit, when that concrete hits the formwork, you need all of them and they work. You know why they're there. And you learn the meaning of set in concrete very quickly. (laughs) Set in concrete, absolutely. So moving along to what I wanted to talk to you about, I guess the purpose of Builderpedia is to really unpack the building industry for people inside it and for people outside it to give like perspectives and sneak peeks and under the hood I guess insights where we're in an industry where there's a lot of vanilla flavored information very much you know it's it's very hard to to dig in and get the right info but I wanted to ask you about client engagement particularly because I know you do it a little bit differently than most builders you don't get into a tender pack you don't get into a quoting competitive tendering situation as i understand but what is it that makes for a successful engagement between a client and a builder well i'll probably start the other way around and and what where 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 it fails and and i think if you identify where the failures are then you sort of can figure out where you can succeed i think it fails at the very very beginning and i don't blame builders and i don't blame architects or designers and I certainly don't blame clients I actually blame the government and I I have a very firm belief unfortunately as is human nature builders get commoditized and it couldn't be anything further from the the truth that the building as a service as a profession as a craft um, is a commodity Every builder is different and offers strengths and weaknesses and has experience different to every other builder. So it's it's not like you know buying paper clips and at the end of the day go to Officeworks and there's four different products, but ultimately they're all paper clips. Um, so buy the cheapest. But that's what tends to happen. And, and unfortunately, why I mentioned the government is that there, there's one certainly in residential. There's 
and I preface this by saying that this is at the moment and has generally been for the last few decades, but hopefully is changing, that there's one builder's license for anyone and everyone for any work over $20,000 to $20 million. It is one builder's license. And, and the tendency for people who aren't in the know is to say, well, you've got a builder's license, you're a builder, you can build and you can build anything because you're allowed to. And I get asked all the time for references when people ask for a builder's license for carpenters or foremen that have worked for us in the past or are still working with us. And I fill in a foreman. I say, well, this foreman was a, a foreman on this job between that day and that day, and he did whatever it might be, a, a site set out, safety, coordination of trades, and is generally a good foreman, a good tradesman, but has never done a quote, never done a, written a contract, never done a variation, never done a progress claim, never done an extension of time, never done a payroll, never done marketing. So, yeah, building, not only is it a service, but it's a business. And I think that the government sets people up who are otherwise good tradesmen and good people to fail because they don't even have the experience. It's not whether they're smart or not smart. They, they haven't been taught properly. They might have done a couple of classes in Cert 4 at TAFE and are given this sort of license to take on risk that they're not properly prepared to cost, to assess, to mitigate, and that's with you know, safety, that's with financial control, it's with quality control. So, you know, it's no surprise then that the average building company goes broke within three years because they just, they're not properly equipped or prepared to undertake all of the risks that they do. And if they don't assess the risk properly, they don't price things properly. If they don't price things properly, appear to be cheaper. And then when we're talking about hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, their clients and architects are tempted to go with those people. So I think that is where the system falls down. I, I think another part of, again, the, the issues with the building industry are free quotes. I think human nature is if something is free, people take advantage of it and don't fully appreciate it. And as I was explaining to my son this morning about something completely different, but at the end of the day, it's cost benefit. And if it doesn't cost anything, then why wouldn't you take something if someone's offering it to you for free? So, you know, the tender process is that, that architects generally will go to five or six builders because it's free. Uh, even though these processes take hundreds of hours collectively, maybe even thousands of hours, depending on a project, the size of the project, if you include electricians and plumbers and concreters and joiners and window fabricators, and some builders might go to two or three of those for each tender to try and manage their risk, there's hundreds and hundreds of hours of productivity that people give away for free. And it's not just even the productivity, it's also the IP, you know, the clever, more clever ways to do things or smarter ways to do things or faster way to do things. or so. People go to an architect say, I'd like to build. They don't necessarily come up with a budget. Sometimes they do. The budget might be based off a friend who wasn't quite open on exactly how much they spent because they didn't want to, they didn't want their friends to know how much the money they'd really spent. And even if they're being truthful, it might have been a price that's maybe two years old already, uh, even though they've just finished it. 
So the new price would be more anyway. And really what you want to know is what's the price going to be in two more years when it's finished or three years, depending on how long it takes to get a DA. But really do architects consult with builders along the way to say, look, this is what I've designed before we go to DA and, and argue with council and get something approved that is pretty hard to change. You know, you can change tiles, you can change timber floors, you can change a, even a brick wall to a timber wall. It's very hard to change the scale of a building, which is the only thing that really a DA approves. So it's actually the biggest driver of cost is the one thing that you are locking in when you get a DA. So, oh, no. so I think engaging with a builder during that pre-DA process is really valuable and you should pay that builder for his time or her time. And then I think when they, when they go, finally get it approved and, and continue to document with engineering and et cetera, et cetera, then they go to five or six builders and ask them all to price it for free. And then somehow, you know, there's a huge spread. You know, sometimes it can be double from the bottom to the top can be double. To say it's two million and four million and, and there's three or four guys in between there somehow. But somehow the cheapest price is the right price. And I'm speaking generally, it's not always the that not everyone jumps to that conclusion, but generally speaking, there's that instinct to say, well, let's start with the lowest price and go up from there. And somehow the four or five other builders are wrong. And again, that just sets the whole thing up for failure, number one. And I think that whole, you know, there could be many reasons why that person is cheaper or appears to be cheaper. They could uh, have made mistakes, uh, could have left things out and put it in fine print. They could have allowed for different things that are, you know, not specified correctly or incorrectly. And there's, you know, needs to be a very thorough process to make sure that that you're comparing apples with apples with apples in that tender process to find the right builder, not the cheapest builder. You evolved from, I know that you tended at one point because we were in tender meetings <laughs> in the same place in subsequent tender meetings. So you moved away. We did. I think you know, Albert Einstein was someone who said um, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And we spent many, many years tendering and, and pricing jobs and losing jobs to people that appeared to be cheaper. And we would meet those people later or we'd end up going to fix the job at the end for other people. And, and I'd meet those people and say, you know what, you were actually, you were right. And they, they added it all back in later or they did a terrible job. But our, you know, our success rate for tenders was ridiculous. And when you look at how much time and effort goes into each tender it just wasn't worth our while and i remember again back to university john hutchison who was a uh, marketing professor and you know he said two things that stuck out to me you know the worst thing a builder can get is a phone call saying you've won the job because clearly you know you were the cheapest then and what have you forgotten or what did you get wrong yes what have you forgotten <laughs> and then it sets the client up as an adversary to the builder because somehow you've got to get that money back. And it's just not a very collaborative method of engagement, number one. And the other thing that, it, off topic slightly, but it, it, I remember it now that he, he always used to say, if you're marketing when you're slow, it's too late. You know, you need to be marketing and continue marketing when you're busy so that you never get slow. Yeah, absolutely. And on the flip side, if things are slowing down, redouble. 
if the industry's slowing down, that's the time to redouble your spend. And that's the old yeah, parable. Intuitive, right? Things are slowing down. You say, okay, let's, let's yeah. keep it tight and not spend uh, too much money. And I think that's rather pertinent at the moment. So what do you do now? Like how do you source clients? What's the trade secret? And how did you move away from – because I, I, we're sort of aligned. We, we went in different ways. We, we were both at one point before when I worked with Chris Yunkin at Yunkin Builders and subsequently when I started Ballast Point. Yeah, I was we were tendering, but, yeah, we moved in a different direction. We moved into a design and build format. But what did you do and how did you transition and what do you do now? How do you solve that problem of connecting to clients? So we did, I guess, two fundamental changes. One was that we decided to only engage on a cost plus basis. And that, again, I think that's got a lot of connotations and a lot. there is a lot of risk involved with cost plus contracts with the wrong builder and the wrong architect and the wrong client. It's not for everyone, definitely not. And it needs to be managed properly in two ways. One is that you start with a really a reasonable budget uh, and not an airy-fairy budget or a, or a wishful budget, but a, a proper, robust budget based on whatever scope that you're aware of. And number two, and this is equally, if not more important, is that it needs to be updated on a regular basis. So that was one fundamental change that we that we made. And the other was that we would try and get engaged as early as possible in the journey, in the life cycle of, of the build, and offer our expertise um, as early as possible. Because I think the earlier a builder can get involved and, and charge for our time to do so, we're professional services, and the earlier that people can get involved, yeah, we can make decisions or help make decisions that will save hundreds of thousands of dollars in terms of program or changing materials or structure or methodology that will be 10 times more than what we would charge for our time to give that advice. And in our, in our case, you know, it's a standalone service, pre-construction service. We call it Horizon Advisory. And some clients, not many, thankfully, but some clients decide to engage us to do that pre-construction work and advice and then uh, go out to tender. But at least they have their expectations managed. And when they do go to tender and someone is at two million and, and we've shown them why it's four million, um, they can see that that two million is not the right price for them and that they're going to, so they can avoid that, that train smash. And if someone comes in at six million, it's like, well, we don't think you've fully understood it or you've spent enough time on it or, or that you really want the job or whatever, because we can see that it's four million. And, and we, we go through a very detailed process and line by line to show our clients why it costs what it costs. And I think they really enjoy that actually and appreciate it and value it. And more often than not, it builds enough trust. Uh, between us and our clients that they say, okay, we actually don't need to go to tender now. We'll continue on with you. And we know that we will either have, you know, three prices on each trade and, and therefore the sum of all of those prices will be the best possible price for the build. And it's always re referring back to our original budget. So flipping it around a little bit, pretend 
horizon's not here or we're in a different city and you're a client trying to connect with a builder, trying to find, so you've had something designed, I guess. You're in the late stages getting moving towards commencement within a few months or, you know, three months, say. What insights can you give to a client who's looking to find a builder and, and have a positive engagement? And I guess get a competitive price, get a fair price. What's your advice from like flipping you around a little bit? You know, what's your I mean, advice? That's a good question. Well, first and foremost, like anything, yeah, check some references, right? Just call some previous clients or call some architects or designers or people that you know or know of that, that have worked together with that builder and, and just, you know, ask a few questions about, you know, how they enjoy the process and, and how was their communication and how was their, you know, organization? How organized were they? And depending on the builder and depending on the project, I think it's really important to not only meet the builder per se, but to also have a um, meet the project manager and meet the the foreman, and because they're the people that you're going to deal with the most. Um, and everyone, you know, everyone's got a different personality and, and a different way of dealing with people. And so I think it's yeah, you know, it's important to go and see their work, but it's important to meet the people that you're going to deal with throughout the project and and hopefully after the project as well. So check some references, meet the people. I, I think, you know, open communication is really important and, you know, business is about managing expectations. So set your expectations out very early and clearly, time, cost, quality, whatever they might be, set out what your expectations are so that the builder can set a path to achieving them and meeting them, hopefully exceeding them. Yeah, and be and I guess I would add be be reasonable to your expectations because you you do get people who just go well I want it done for the best price and I want it quickly and I and I want highest quality possible and you're like well okay but like which is which is the most important I guess that's what I would kind of go well be reasonable in your expectations and I think a good builder will you know will be able to push back a little bit and say look you can't have again. It's it's interesting how much I really did learn at uni. I, I remember learning at uni that you've only got two hands and you've got three balls. <laughs> very, very hard to juggle all three balls with two hands. So time, cost, you know, you can build quickly and, and very high quality, but, but the cost is, is something that's difficult to manage. You can build it cheaply and high quality, but it, it might take a long time, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very hard to manage those three balls, and I, I would argue that there's a fourth ball there, time, cost, quality, and, and service. So to do all four with two hands is even harder. I think it, um, you know, it's about being organized. It's about having good people, good systems for quality, for financial control, for safety, for um, communicating with people, setting expectations out nice and early, and you know, pushing back if those expectations are are unreasonable or, or, or not possible to achieve because, you know, if you already know that you can't meet those expectations, it's better to say so up front. David, I was going to ask you, like, because I do come across clients who have failed in their endeavour to secure a builder and they come, they've come to me and, and sometimes it's the fact that their documentation is so poor that they're confusing everybody. So that's definitely something that happens that I've seen firsthand and I and I'm just have to say to them up being very upfront, 
I don't understand what your project is <laughs> and probably no one else does either. But what are other things that I guess maybe what are things that ring alarm bells for you as a builder when if a client comes to you? What are things that are real turnoffs? Real turnoffs? It doesn't come naturally to me, but if people sort of aren't prepared to pay for our service, then they're not really our clients. So I think if they're not prepared or they haggle on a price for our advice and don't quite value what we're offering, you know, we sort of we, we try and push back and, and just go, look, probably not your your builder. That's the ultimate qualifier, isn't it? It's, it's that I, initial, I, I it that is, initial and bit. If I look back at, you know, where projects have gone well and haven't gone well and, and often, you know, where we do, where people are difficult to negotiate with early on, they, they end up being difficult to deal with during the build. So, again, I think um, just us being up front, this is what we offer, this is what we charge, this is why it's good value. If people can't quite appreciate that, then they're, they're not the right client for us. I certainly empathise with clients and architects, clients mostly where they've been, often when they come to us, and I think it's unfortunate, but it is what it is, Often people come to us and they're already, you know, sometimes a year, 18 months, two years down the track. They've been through this process of, of getting a design and getting it approved at council and neighbours and, and perhaps the building isn't exactly what they, in the terms of size or scale or, or finish that they wanted, but they've, they've had to compromise here or there and they've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars sometimes on designers and, and engineers and expert reports etc etc and they and they, you know, they, they get it approved and they, they they just want to start and i think certainly on a fixed price it's very difficult and it just sets if the detail isn't there if it, if it's not ready and you sign a fixed price you're just setting yourself up for variations and, and conflict whereas i think cost plus is is a better way to approach those types of projects but you know i come back to saying it's not for everyone and, and it's it comes down to an appetite for risk and a, and a and an ability to take on risk and afford the risk, and a discipline to say, all right, well, we've got a budget of X dollars for this trade or this element of the build, and we're going to design and you know decide on something that is within budget. So I come back to that point where I say the budget needs to be a reasonable budget so that you're not forced to compromise later and either say we're going to go over budget because you know it wasn't right and what we really wanted was going to cost twice as much or compromise and say we're, we haven't got any more money so we're going to have to compromise on what we want to to meet our budget and and again that pre-construction process where we we talk about all of the different options and cost out all of the different things um, allows people to understand why it costs what it costs so that by the time you're ready to start building, the budget is is reasonable and then ideally um, shouldn't really run away from you once you start building because you've already got a lot of it priced and you've decided on what you want. You know, at the, at the end of the day, part of that building management service is to determine what is being done, by whom, when they should do it, and how much should it cost. And if I come back to the question you asked maybe five minutes ago in terms of what are the keys to success 
with a client and an architect and a builder, my firm belief is the earlier you know who is doing what, when, and for how much, the greater the chance of a successful outcome for the project. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I guess I, we, I guess my company ballast point, we took it one step further where we're doing the design, where we took it right to the beginning. And uh, that's, we, that's why you've always been smarter than me. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that, but um, I'm certainly no. I have no regrets, and we've solved the same problem in different ways. But do you get a sense that the way procurement happens is changing? Because, at, like, once upon a time, it felt like it was just a five builder tenders were the thing, and even before digital kind of submission, before Dropbox and all of those things came into existence you would have to drive a tender to the architect's office and deliver it. Well, I, I remember, you know, when I moved to the office, probably in 2000, I'd spent a few years overseas. I came back and I got a job as a just a cadet in the office at Horizon again. I really only ever worked for one company. I remember, you know, pushing the plans and the paper through the line printer with the ammonia and almost suffocating myself uh, trying to make copies and then folding it all up and putting it in an envelope and then driving up to the post office and, and sending out the tenders by mail. And then you know, a week or two later, I'd get a fax with a quote from the plumber and the electrician and the and the concrete. So, yeah, yeah, it's certainly come a long way and we've got lots of technology in our business now in terms of being able to uh, measure things uh, in, in PDF and putting you know, our cost plans together. But David, do you think that the not technology aside has the procurement change? Like you don't have that sort of. There's still tenders, but I feel like mo like you like you and I and a n- number of other builders that I know, they are moving away from the traditional tender system. Do you think the industry's moving as a well, whole? I, I think slowly, slowly but surely, and I think um, that it, it, it's actually being driven by the builders, and I'm proud of our industry and my peers that, that are starting to push back and just go, look, our time is valuable. And this is not the bank of horizon. We're not risk managers. We're not financiers. We're not skilled at, at uh, financing projects and taking on these types of risks and even assessing them. So, you know, for us to take on the risk of uh, an eight or a nine or a $10 million job is not something we're prepared to do anymore. And there are guys out there. But I think certainly at the larger end of the spectrum, a lot of builders are saying, look, I'll, I'll only do it cost plus for a number of reasons. You know, the risk, the, the awareness of the risk. You know, you do a $10 million job in a year, you're turning over a million dollars a month almost. And with, you know, especially on a fixed price, you've got a retention of, of 10% at the beginning, 5%, you know, all the way through uh, after that. Um, you're only trying to make 4 or 5%. I mean, you know, I think again, human nature and a, and a, you know a lack of education from builders to educate clients and architects. You know, just because we're turning over millions of dollars doesn't mean we're making millions of dollars. And I think you know we've had over the years, many years, many clients who are in retail or or other industries that when you say to them, you know, a triple A rated building company according to Home Warranty or some of the ratings agencies are making 4 or 5% net profit, they're horrified. And they wouldn't get out of bed for that. You know, 
uh, retail, you'll buy a T-shirt for $10 and sell it for $20. To buy it for $10 and, and sell it for ten fifty or $11, is it just doesn't stack up. Now, certainly the volume's not there and there's lots of uh, other things to consider, but the risks in safety and in quality and in program and all of these other things don't stack up to such a high turnover, small margin industry. And I think people are becoming more and more aware of that and changing the way that they get engaged and, and changing the way that they procure builders. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, when you start out in the industry, you don't really think about it. But over time, you realize, well, I, I've realized, I should say, I'm wondering what you think, just what an absurd and what an outlier it is in compared to other industries. It's no other industry. Do, like if, if you're buying a T-shirt or you're buying anything else, you don't hire a designer first and then go through a procurement process with them and hire all these people separately. So I found that the more I go on, the more it's a weird anomaly in, in no, the world. No one can come back six years later and go, look, the stitching on that T-shirt wasn't that great either. Can you give me a new T-shirt? That's right. You know, it's people don't quite understand even, and, and I think a lot of builders don't understand that, that even once they finished a project and got that final payment, that it's not always the case that that's the end of their expenses on that project. You know, the other thing that I tell a lot of people is a building business, two guys that went to tape together or played footy together or, and a good tradesman. And they go out, they get a builder's license, they start a, a new business. And very quickly, if you're doing two or three renovations a year, you can be turning over $5 million. A lot of small builders are turning over $5 million a year. Um, that's $100,000 a week, every week of the year with you know paying the tiler before or the tile supply company before they'll deliver having 10% of your cash flow having a client who's uh, you know hasn't you finished but they haven't paid so managing that cash flow is is huge but when you get to a business that's maybe 10 million dollars which again is not a massive business anymore if you were in retail and you were turning over 10 million dollars first of all you'd be probably be making 3 or 4 million dollars net profit and you would have a CEO, you know, who's got some sort of financial training, possibly a chartered accountant, maybe even an MBA, who are versed in the the methods of business, um, HR and financial control and marketing and sales. And again, I feel like the industry just sets up a lot of the young guys and commoditizes them and sets them up to fail because they're not trained in managing these monsters of businesses with tiny, tiny profit margins and the responsibility of warranting those properties for you know, six and, and soon I think will be 10 years. And um, that risk just isn't properly accounted for. And um, yeah, it's just a difficult, a difficult thing to do it. And how do architects fit? Because you obviously do things a little bit differently, but you're still, I guess, is the architect for you part of, are they the composer that the conductor consults with or are they the composer that, 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 that gets pushed out of the way and the conductor takes on the, the music score and runs with it? What's your, what, how no, do you approach it? No, I, I mean, I, I think for a successful outcome, 
and, and you know, certainly in the houses that we build, you know, an architect is an absolutely fundamental, integral part of the, the build. And, you know, I love great architecture. It's what I always wanted to do. I, you know, I tell a funny story. I used to, I even told it this morning, again, back to university. I was sitting in a mechanical services lecture, I think, and, and learning about lifts and thinking, well, I, I always, I, I only just want to build really good houses. What do I need to sit here and learn about lifts for? And you know, lo and behold, 10 years later, pretty much every house we build has got a lift in it. But, you know, at the end of the day, architects have a really important role and we really enjoy working together to take their vision and, and make it a reality. And how do you manage, because I probably, uh, it wouldn't surprise you that architects and and clients may have competing interests or competing objectives in any particular project. Like you, you've probably experienced this, is what I'm saying. But so how do you manage that? A client, a lot of clients want a nice place to live and uh, want it done in a time on budget. An architect is often after something completely different, not completely different, but they're trying to design something that is that that does help them not only secure more work by being something exceptional but also they they like to push the envelope so how do you how do you fit into those two when when they're competing sort of objectives what what, how do you manage those i think it's it's very difficult and we not often but sometimes put architects nose out of joint because we're very organized often we make people feel like they we're showing them up and now we'll, we'll, we'll have a site meeting i think again one of the skills and the benefits of, of horizon is how far ahead we look for problems that's in the name right <laughs> well well all right i never thought about it like that but yes we look as far as we can towards the horizon to identify problems and I've got a firm belief if you bring up a problem without offering a solution, you're just a whinger. So we don't want to be whingers. We want to offer solutions. And I often say myself, look, if this was my house, this is what I would do, which I think is really important. So I think we strive to give clients and architects enough time to identify a problem, come up with a solution, and make a decision before it becomes a delay. And I think that's really important. But some architects and some clients can feel like, you know, when we go week after week and it's in the minutes and it's like, okay, well, we needed that decision from you and you haven't given it to us uh, another week's gone by, the client's going, well, what am I paying the architect for? And the architect goes, you can't box me. This is, I'm being, I, I'm a creative, you know, I need time to, to think about this and develop it and iterate. And so I think, you know, a word we use a lot at Horizon is, is empathy and empathy for the client and empathy for the architect or the interior designer and try and put ourselves in their shoes and, and you know, feel the pressure or the, you know, how they feel to make decisions, you know, and, and even just the stress of making the wrong decision, you know. Yeah. So some, some people don't make a decision because they are scared of making the wrong decision. So again, it's our it's our job to, I think, number one, highlight it well in advance. Number two, offer a suggestion. 
And number three, then keep on it until we get what we need. My favorite magic trick or Jedi mind trick with architects is to say, look, if you don't come back to us, this is what we're going to do. It's miraculous. They're back to you in minutes. Yeah, or, or, or they don't come back to you at all, but the decision's been made. Yeah, but no, no, they always they always come back. In my experience, if they're engaged and like if they're in the project, we've got a project manager here, and he says, "Tell me to stop." Yeah, but, you know, don't tell me what to do, but just this is what we. If you don't tell me to stop, this is what we're going to do. Yep. Uh, so tell me to stop, and I, and I think you know that's not our first uh, option. You know, our first option is to ask and offer a solution, but if we don't get a solution, then we'll sort of say, look, this is what we, we're going to do. And, I, you know, it's not my preference for a couple of reasons, but ultimately, you know, we don't want to take that responsibility. You know, we want to be able to say, this is what we did because that was what was on the drawing or that was the instruction or or that, you know, that sort of thing. So you, um, day-to-day, you, you have architects, but you are you are your contracts administered by architects? How, how do you structure? It, it just depends. Every, every job's different. You know, we've got clients that live overseas and they're not engaged at all. Uh, they just want the, the thing done and the architect is their representative. We have jobs where there's a, a client-side project manager involved, which, you know, assuming that the project manager is good, we welcome because I think it, it takes some of the emotion out of a lot of decision-making and they're, you know, they become a trusted advisor and, and you know, again, assuming that they're good, they often agree with with us, and they can they can often um, you know, give a help the client guide the client to make the right decision, but also sometimes suggest you know, better decisions or trades that we can approach to get a, a second or a third price, and it gives that transparency to say, look, our electrician that we recommend is this price, and you guys you know brought this electrician, and 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 look, our price is actually even better. So that they get that comfort that, that they're getting the best possible outcome. Sometimes there's no architect involved at all. Again, I would say that that's our least preference because we're not designers. We want, we want someone to guide us on the design and make those decisions. And, you know, we know what we're good at and we know what we're not good at because it's not our cup of tea. So every job is, is unique. And I think, again, that's probably part of, certainly at our end of the industry, that's part of the the complexity of what we're trying to build is that every house we build is a prototype. Yeah. It's never been done before. That house on that block of land with those neighbours, with that design, with that engineer, with those weather conditions, with those ground conditions, you know, if you break up the little parts, you say, okay, yes, we've done peering before elsewhere, we've done steel windows before we've done copper before we've done timber flooring before but not all of it together with those project people uh, on that side etc etc so every job you know just needs to be set up on its merits david maybe we should summarize some insights for potential clients who are looking to engage quality builders i guess what are free takeaways for those clients well, you're going to hate me but number one is builders don't build. <laughs> uh, and, and 1A is, yeah, don't teach a bricklayer how to lay bricks. You know, just, just surround yourself with the best musicians 
you can find and put them in your orchestra. And don't put the concrete on the trumpet as much. Okay. All right, we'll agree on that. <laughs> I, th- I think number two is the sooner that you decide what is being done by who, when, and for how much, the greater the, the chance that you've got a, for success. You know, I always say smooth is fast. Uh, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And I think to if you can set up a job and put a foreman on that job and say, this is your plumber, this is your electrician, this is your demolisher, this is your concreter, this is your bricklayer, these are guys doing the windows and the roof, and, and you know, perhaps you don't have a painter or, or maybe even a joiner, but, but you, that you've got six, seven, eight, ten, twelve trades let before you even start, your foreman can build smoothly. You know, obviously, if you have let those contracts on fixed prices, now that's one thing we didn't discuss. We, we work on cost plus, but every one of our contracts is a fixed price. If you can let a fixed price, obviously you've got a defined scope. So doing that homework up front, defining the scope, what is getting done, then deciding who's going to do it and telling them when, the more you can do before you start, you know, the builders know what they're doing and who's doing it. And there's not that much design work to do because it's already been designed and and let as a contract. And and there should be a you know the budget sort of fleshes itself out because you know what you're doing and you've let it you're a fixed price contract. So unless you change something or add something, that figure shouldn't change. So it takes a lot of the risk out, it takes a lot of the costs out for management of getting quotes and tenders and everything else. And and hopefully also costs of uh, designers in designing things because it's already been done. So doing your homework up front and letting as many trades as possible, I think, um, uh, ensures the best um, chances of success. And then, you know, just clear, open communication, regular communication. Uh, a lot of architects, because they, I, I feel like sometimes architects undersell their services. They don't charge enough to do enough work uh, and then want to try and look at where they can save money. And one of the things they try and save money is not coming out to site as often. They want to come every two weeks or three weeks. But I think it's really important to meet once a week, even if it's, you know, instead of a two-hour meeting every three weeks that you meet one hour every week, it's much more value to get a decision window every week than every three weeks, and that will speed up the process and ultimately save money because if you can build quicker, you can build cheaper. And the way to build quicker is to be organized and build smoothly. And the way to build smoothly is to have everything done as early as possible. And to build smoothly in the last two years, I mean, has been (laughs) near impossible. I mean, it feels like nothing has been smooth between rain and... uh... Uh, Rain has definitely affected our business. But I think certainly in our business, our people have been great. Our systems that we've built over 34 years have been great. Our culture is is really something we're very proud of. And we've got 50 people and 25 of those people have been with us for more than five years and 10 people have been with us for more than 10 years. So that's been a real sort of ace in the deck for us to be able to deliver and, and build smoothly. And I think, you know, ultimately the relationships that we've got all around us, clients, designers, staff, subcontractors, builders don't build, so subcontractors are a huge part of our business. Those relationships and being able to leverage those relationships and say, come to our job 
instead of that other builder has allowed us to to survive and even thrive over the last couple of years. Yeah, and I, I would add to that, you've got to have the right builder. You've got to find the right builder. And- H-O-R-I-Z-O-N. <laughs> but Horizon, yeah, but I think you would agree, David, that Horizon is not the right builder for every client either. No, they're not the right builder, and there are many good builders out there, you know, all jokes aside, but there are many that, that, that aren't good, and I think you've just got to put the right horse on the right course and, you know, a little bit of due diligence. You know, again, I, I you know, come back to CEOs uh, running large businesses. I just see it all the time where business people make decisions on their own house they would never make if they had to stand in front of their board in their business and say, I've decided to build our factory with this builder and here's my decision criteria. You know, the board would sack them, but but somehow they don't follow the same process uh, when they build their own house. Yeah, and I, I guess in terms of not the right builder, like if you're building a granny flat, in the outer burbs, Horizon's not going to be very useful. No, no, absolutely um, not. So, so you've got to find, I guess, the thing that I found, and we have it in subbies as well, there's the horses for courses, right? You, you have to have the right person with the right sort of capacity that builds like things. So it's amazing how many people bring in someone who's built a few pergolas and some decks and the odd little extension and want them to do a new build for them so i think it's the it's 100 having someone who's done similar work has a track record in similar work and and if it's if it's large homes that of, of high quality in in parts of sydney the horizon without a doubt but uh except maybe i have to say or maybe yunkin but uh, you know oh, that that might be controversial i have some some loyalty to my former mentor no, not, but, not uh, at all there are lots of good builders out there yeah and horizon i would hope uh, considered one of them meet the builder meet the project manager meet the foreman talk to previous clients talk to architects and set out your expectations what are you looking to get out of this project? And, you know, ask for detail, you know, financial control, safety, quality control. You know, are there systems and processes, you know, in the business that will give you a greater chance of success than, than just two knockabout blokes and a ute with a checkbook in the, uh, in the glove box, which... Some people out there might not know what a checkbook is anymore. Yeah, definitely the right horse for the right course. David, that's a great place to wrap up, I think. Thank you so much for your Thank time. You. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, you always have to say very generous of your time with your advice. And uh, yeah, I'm very grateful that you joined it's a us pleasure. today. You've been listening to Buildopedia. Please remember to like us and share our episode with your friends. We'd love your comments and suggestions. And we have a new website, buildopedia.au, where you can get in touch or leave a question and check out our blog.